All right, Galatians chapter 5. All right, I was uh, telling Paul Twist today, the challenge of in and out is connectivity. Uh, We were talking just about his travel schedule and mine and not competing or comparing, but just simply saying that uh, when you're in and out, it's a little more difficult for continuity's sake. Um, So let me tell you what I'm thinking today. I'm thinking that uh, today will be the last installment for a while on the subject that has been part of my uh, priority with you. Anybody know what that priority is? Salt. Yeah, you heard me talk about it if you endured a second installment, which was kind of the summary of a lot of thoughts, uh, trying to figure out what was most important to tell the whole church family, challenging them, energizing, encouraging them to be what? Salt. You are the salt, which means you and his reason for killing me was the convicting uh, reality that, I mean, those were his words, and he didn't look like he was serious. He just, I said, really? I said, what did I do? He said, you convicted me. And I said, no, I didn't convict you. The Bible did, and the Spirit of God did. He said, well, I'm changing. And uh, that's the goal, is to really apply the Word of God in a way that provides for the world in which you live the people that you engage with. Listen, you're providentially planted, whether it's here for now or Texas in the near-term future. You're not there by accident. The people in your life, the relationships you have, the neighbors that uh, are next door to you and across the street and the parents and the club or the ball team that you uh, travel with, with your children, um, the place you work, the places you shop, You are something that if you aren't that something, they aren't given what they desperately need. A powerful preservative, a picture of purity, a provider of pleasure, a seasoning in their life. You just make it better. And God helping you by the virtue of your winsome, credible witness, you make them thirsty, which salt should. It should provoke thirst. Passion for God, passion for whatever it is you have because they want it because you're engaged in their life. You're the salt of the earth unless you're not. Key ingredients to salt, intentional and eternal and practical impact, involve two big ideas. One is proximity. And here's my question today because I'm not up here just to unpack the Bible to you. I'm actually up here to unpack the Bible and challenge you to apply the Bible. To not deceive yourself into thinking that advanced knowledge in the ways of God is the goal of God. The goal of God is knowing it and then doing it. Prove yourselves doers. Remember James? We were in that book many months. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not just hearers, lest you deceive yourselves. You live in the insane assumption that knowing it is the goal of it, which is insanity for the Christian. So the two big ideas, and here's where I want to begin today. I want to ask you a pointed question. Number one, do you have a confident, compelling conviction that propels decisions about who you are and who you must be? Because unless you are what you're supposed to be by way of the properties and the quality of your identity as the salt of the earth, you're good for nothing. 
You're good for nothing. So whatever it is you're doing as a father, a parent, a friend, a neighbor, you're not good for anything that matters. That's sobering. So the first question is, because the two big ingredients or the two big focal points or priorities as it relates to optimizing and maximizing your role in the world today involve, number one, proximity. Are you proactively, here's a question for you, one to ten. Ten being, man, I can't get any more engaged. One being, I live on an island somewhere in the South Pacific. I am just not engaged at all. My home is my island. My driveway is the world I live in and the parking spot at work. One to ten. How penetratingly present are you in the world that God has providentially placed you in? I'm not talking Grace Church. I'm talking about the world outside of Grace Church. I'm not talking about your Bible study. I'm not talking about this fellowship group. I'm asking the pointed question, 1 to 10, grade yourself. How engaged am I really? How proactively engaged am I in the life of those who desperately need what I alone possess? 1 to 10. Whatever the number is, then ask this question. What will it take to raise the number? A notch. So if you're a six, what will it take to move you to a seven? If you're a three, what will it take? If you're a one, you need to get saved. Because, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it very well may be true. If you have no passion to be who God called you to be, something's absent essential to your reality as a Christian. Because fundamental to Christianity are certain built-in passions. When you become a new creation, you become a person with new passions and pursuits. You love what you didn't used to love. You're interested in what you didn't used to be interested in. I had a person who gave their testimony to me this past year and said, you know, but in the past, I worked with people, but I didn't care about anybody. I became a Christian, and one of the most obvious, definitive changes that occurred in my life was my interest in other people. You know what that is? That's what happens in a Christian. That's the evidence of transformation. Born again, born from above, changed from the inside out. So here's the question, how engaged are you? And if not, why not? And what will it take to raise the bar? Don't be a hearer and not a doer. Number two, the other big focal point, and the one that made this into a series, is revolving around the word potency. Salt is influential. Salt is good unless it's lost its saltiness. If it's not tasty, it's tasteless, and if it's tasteless, it's good for nothing except to be tossed out and trampled underfoot. It's not good for the soil or for the manure pile. It's useless introducing the idea of potency. How concentrated, how potent, how powerful is your life as it engages the people with, that you're engaged with or involved with? How impactful are you? I remember traveling to Europe for the first time, and frankly, I was a bit naive and ignorant of some of the kind of the culture and the character of everything, really. My first missions trip, I uh, sat down in a Hungarian restaurant in Budapest, and 
I was asked if I wanted some coffee. And I said, oh, of course. And then they brought me this tiny little cup, like they were rationing coffee. And it looked like mud. I couldn't see the bottom. It was very, very thick. The other thing that I wasn't prepared for was the sweetener. And, you know, I I require sweetener for my coffee. And uh, they brought me this little container with lots of little pellets in it. Well, I just took a spoonful of that and put it in my little cup. You know, that was... That was a guy learning that those little pellets are high concentrate sweetener. Like a pellet would have done me. But I did a spoonful of pellets in naivety in order to take my little cup and make it drinkable. And it was undrinkable, not now because it was mud, but because it was sweet mud. So sweet that I couldn't take it in. And the idea is, is it doesn't take a lot if it's concentrated and potent. You don't have to be hyper-engaged and, and, and in high volume if you're potent. A little bit can go a long way if you are a potent, tasty, salty believer. So I, I want to ask you, how salty are you really as measured by the priorities that we unpacked over these many weeks. And I'm going to ask you one to 10, do the same thing, because here's what potent, these are essential potency priorities. And this comes out of Luke 14. This is salt is good. Therefore, salt is good. Therefore, point you back to the context. The context has to do with Christ over everything discipleship. So here's the first question. How potent are you? One to 10. How much is Christ a priority to you? 1 to 10, Christ over you, your people, your possessions, your passions, how often, how strong, really now, not what you promote here, but what actually happens here and there, how much do you prioritize and pick Christ over other things? How central is he? How much of a priority is he? Because potent Christians pick Christ over family, possessions, and their own passions first and foremost, which is not to say the other stuff doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter compared to the priority that he represents. I called it Christ first, Jesus first Christianity. Potency priority number two, you have an unshakable confidence in God's presence with you. This came out of Joshua when we engaged there. Hey, listen, God said to Joshua, we're going to go into the land. Remember, the land is the place of abundance. It's typical or symbolizing abundant life. Giants in the land, double-walled cities, but there's going to be victorious capacity as you enter into the land. Joshua, you're my man. I was with Moses, so I'm going to be with you. I didn't forsake him. I'm not going to forsake you. And three times in the short part of chapter 1 where the angel of the Lord and Joshua are engaged, the angel of the Lord says, be strong and very courageous. The rationale is not because you're strong, I'm with you, that makes you strong. The idea is that for you to enter into the place of abundant living and impactful influencing, which is what Canaan represents, you need a courageous, unshakable confidence in God's presence with you. And I argued you can't be potent if you're not courageously engaged. 
You cannot be cowardly or feel fearful of real obstacles and real enemies. Listen, the world is not your friend. And sometimes when you speak up or act in a way that a Christian ought to act, you will not be popular. And you're going to be faced with the decision, am I or aren't I? Will I step up or step back? I'm not saying get in a fight. I'm saying, will you courageously engage with gracious words and convictional truth that is necessary to salt the world in which you live? Lo, I am with you always is in the Great Commission. It is a confident assertion. Jesus said, hey, wherever you go bearing the good news, I'm with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews says. So here's the 1 to 10. How confident and how courageous and how unshakable is that confidence? One is I'm a wimp, I'm a mouse, I'm passive, I don't talk, I shrink into the shrubbery, I'm absent. Listen, you're the salt of the earth. If you're not in it, on it, and potently engaged and present, it's good for nothing. It's not salty, it's tasteless. Number three, the word of God is in you and lived out by you. This is Psalm 1. When the word of God is your delight and you meditate therein day and night, the effect is you're not just like a tree firmly planted, green leaves, fruit bearing, but in whatever you do, you prosper, Aramaic root, you accomplish the purpose for which you are compelled or commissioned. You're successful. So the Word of God in you, lived out by you. I argue that if you're not a meditator, you're not potent. It's more than hearing the Word of God. It's more than memorizing it. It's delighting in it day and night, owning it so you can share it, live it, and benefit by it. One to ten, how are you doing? Number four, God's wisdom flowing through you. High, potent Christians high-impact Christians are Christians who are bringing something the world needs when it's wrestling with difficult reality. We were in the book of Job. And Job 28, just past the middle of the book, Job says, man is relentlessly, creatively, and courageously engaged in seeking precious metals, but they don't know where to find wisdom. Wisdom is what I need for my difficulty. Wisdom is what the world needs for their challenging reality. And God's wisdom wrestling with reality is needed. And wisdom comes from God. And that comes because you fear the Lord. Behold, to man he said, this is Job 28, 28. To man, God has said, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You respect me, you honor me, you treat me as God, and to depart from evil is understanding. So if you want to live in a world that makes no sense, you need to respect me, honor me, access the wisdom that comes from me, and you need to depart from evil so that you have understanding in order to navigate life's difficulties. You work hard at it. You're creative in the pursuit of it. So here's the fourth potency priority, wisdom. God's wisdom flowing through you. Listen, every week you ought to engage someone with perspective that they couldn't have if they didn't know God. 
People need what you have, and they need wisdom that you possess. One to ten, how are you doing with accessing that wisdom, seeking the Lord, digging, diligently seeking? Number five, potency principle number five, the testimony of a changed and changing heart. Potent Christians are weekly and week-long worshipers. They give their best for the best, so the world sees a king worthy of worship. Subheading in that is they practice real and regular repentance. Christians are changing. They are changed, and they are changing. An undeniable difference seen in you and daily differences occurring in you. One to ten. Weekly and week-long worship, real and regular repentance. If the people in your life fall over dumbfounded, if they hear you say, I'm sorry, you'll know that you are not as potent as you need to be. Potency priority number six, which is where we are today, Galatians. Potency priority number six, constantly walking, evident supernatural fruit bearing, and consistently winning. When I taught this to you a few weeks ago, I put it under this category. Here's potency, the Spirit of God filling, governing, guiding, and empowering you. There is no potent salt-of-the-earth believer who is not filled with, governed by, guided by, empowered by the Spirit of God. You cannot do this because you come out of our fellowship group on a Sunday and go, man, i got to get my act together. i got to make a list. i got to go home. I've got to do stuff. Well, if you rely on your own capacity, you will be tasteless, not salty. Because walking in victory by the Spirit and impacting, that is salting by the fruit of the Spirit, requires the Spirit of God. This is Galatians 3. We looked at it. You began by the Spirit. Why are you relying on the flesh? You're born from above. You're born as the Holy Spirit, supernaturally, sovereignly, like the wind blowing, comes when he wishes, does what he does. You're born from above. You're born by the Spirit of God. You began by the Spirit, and guess what? You continue by the Holy Spirit. You are spiritually dependent on the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of Christ sent by the Father on behalf of the Son to finish the work that he secured by his sacrifice and life gift. Walking in the Spirit, living by the Spirit. Look with me at Galatians chapter 5, and I want to focus today on a couple of things. I want to focus, number one, on the importance of this, and then the evidence of this. The importance of this, and I even uh, want to challenge you with the how-to of this. Because we don't talk often at least in my experience, in our circles, about walking by the Spirit. And yet in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, 
But I say, says Paul, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh, that's the Adamic nature, that's my natural humanity damaged by the fall, it sets its desire against the Spirit. Capital S, the Spirit of God has desires, and the desires in my natural fallen humanity is opposed. The Spirit against the flesh, the the flesh against the Spirit. For these are, watch this, are in opposition to each other. You have an everyday resistor. You live with yourself. And the fallen nature and its desires, which do not die when you become a Christian, are opposed to the purposes of God in your redemptive journey. You're changed, declared righteous. You have a new appetite, a new nature. You have new desires. And the Spirit of God is the empowering agent present in you to foster this new life in you, and opposed to you is you. And then the world around you with its systemic Stimuli, moving you to self-satisfaction and self-interest and independent living. And then you have an enemy who prowls like a roaring lion, who is aggravating and tempting and engaging in destructive ways. You don't wrestle for life against flesh and blood. Your problem isn't who you work for or the person who lives in your home. You wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. And if you're not armoring up with the, with the protective means that God has provided through the Spirit of God and the armor of the truth, you will not succeed. You have opposition. It is sizable opposition. In you, around you, coming from dark places to injure you and inhibit you. What is required? Here's what is required. A life consistently, here's a better word, constantly connected to the Spirit of God. Walking by the Spirit. Present active imperative, walking has to do with living your life. Verse 16, how? By the Spirit of God. The work of the Spirit in you, The Spirit of God connected to you. Keep going by the Spirit is the critical idea. Here's a big summary statement. You do life by the Spirit. It is a consistent, proactive, comprehensive following and obeying. The means is the agent of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, and he uses his inspired word and his empowering presence, his convicting reality in you. He's taken up residence within you. And you're to walk by the Spirit. You're to do life intimately connected. I gave you some key thoughts. The Spirit of God is your leader, chapter 5, verse 18. You are led by the Spirit. You're submitted to Him. You're listening to Him. You're directed by Him. He's your guide, not just your leader. You're listening to him. Chapter 5, verse 25. Since, the first class condition, since you live by the Spirit, let us also walk. Different word for walk. It's a military term. It's cadence. Stoideo. It means to stay in cadence with. 
It's to march in time with. The Spirit of God is your drill sergeant, not in an ugly way, but in a directive guidance way. You're listening to him, prompting by prompting, step by step, governed by his leadership. He is, thirdly, your influencer and your enabler. It is submitting and relying on him. This was Ephesians 5, where we ended last time. Be filled with, like the gas tank, like under the influence of alcohol. Don't be drunk with wine. That's a waste. Be filled or under the influence or empowered by the Spirit of God. Governed by the Spirit of God, keep on being filled. So it's filling station to filling station. You don't have a one-time filling on Sunday at Grace Church, and then you're good for the week. Your tank's not that big. It is a every day, throughout the day, connecting to the governing, control, sovereign leadership and lordship of the Holy Spirit. If you're filled by Him, you are governed by Him which means you're submitted to him. He's the governor, listen to me, and the gas. He's the engine, and he's the driver. And you are filled with him in order to be an agent of influence. He's your influencer. He's your enabler. He's making you potent and impactful. Keep on being filled. It's a passive verb, but it's an imperative verb, which means you keep receiving. You stay connected. You stay plunked in. You're not filled with anger. You're not dominated by an emotion or a drug. You're filled with, controlled by, and governed by the Spirit of God. That's what verse 25 says. And constantly, you're supernaturally fruit-bearing, evident fruit-bearing. Here is how you know that you are walking in the Spirit. Chapter 5. And by the way, verse 18 said, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, meaning you're not under the condemnation and the indictment of the law. You're not going to get to heaven by keeping the law, but you will live out the expectations of the law if you're led by the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God will make you what you're not, Christ-like. And therefore, you're not under the indictment of the law. You're not guilty of violating its requirements because the Spirit of God is working out the desires of God in you. Potent Christians are Spirit-filled Christians. Potent Christians are every day, I'm on my knees saying, Jesus Christ, Spirit of God, I submit. Fill me, control me, empower me. I'm dependent upon you. I'm listening by your word and by your spiritual presence in my life. And I am obeying and I am following. I'm living in cadence with your leadership in my life. And the effect of that, chapter 5, verse 22, is not the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh, 19 through 21, but the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is. Do you see it? it, The verb is singular. So the fruit is all of this. It's not some of this. It's a package. The fruit consists of all of these qualities. So if I'm walking in the Spirit, if I'm led by the Spirit, 
If I'm in cadence with the Spirit of God, I'm not doing the desires that are natural to my fallenness. I'm living in a way that is consistent with my redeemed humanity. And I'm salty. And the salt is, listen to this, the supernatural, not normal, relational qualities that I express and I possess. Look, there's some nice people that are Mormon people who don't know the Spirit of God. You got nice Jehovah Witnesses. You have nice Catholics. You have nice pagans. But they're not supernatural because they don't know God and they can't bear the Spirit of God, bear the fruit of the Spirit of God because they are not living expressions of the work of God. Listen, Christians are notably different because they possess supernatural qualities. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of a good human. It's supernatural. It's beyond normal. It's, wow, man, how in the world do they do that when they experience that? I'll tell you how. They're spirit-filled. And they're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. One to ten. How are you doing on this list? Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is other-centered behavior. Love is you matter more than I matter. Love is you have a need, I'll meet that need even at cost. Oh, and love is I'll do it even if you don't deserve it. You haven't loved me in ages, but I'm going to love you. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. It's sacrificial, unconditional, beneficial. It is a voluntary action that you take to meet the need of someone, even if they're your enemy, even if they're behaving like your enemy. Some of you live with people. You go, you know what? You don't feel like my friend or family. Christian people have as an expression of supernatural potency, the salt of I'm going to love you with the love of God which is being produced in me. I don't have an explanation for it. It certainly isn't Harry on a good day. It is God doing something that Harry isn't capable of on any day. Here's one of the dangers, I think, of being in a church so well taught. And that is you can learn a lot and think the learning of the truth is sufficient to change your heart. It's the Spirit of God and the truth of God creating a supernatural transformation and fruit-bearing which comes from God. We're not just knowledgeable religious people who do nice things and care about somebody. We are supernaturally endowed with supernatural qualities, unnatural relating capacities. These are relational words. Loving. I think you could say love is the umbrella of it all. Love, joy, you know what that is, internal, regardless of my circumstances, peace not defined by my situation, this kind of rare rest and quiet, irrespective of my circumstances, patience, macro through macro, it's this ability to be long, uh, your, your, your trigger is long, you're, you're enduring, You have a capacity to endure 
Kindness is a beautiful word. It has the idea of not only doing something beneficial, but doing it in such an inspired way that people feel blessed and benefited. Goodness is intrinsic. It's this virtue that comes from the inside, this noble kind of quality. Gentleness or faithfulness, it's just reliability. You're consistent. You can be counted on. You do what you say, you finish what you start, you're faithful to God, you're faithful to people. Gentleness, this is that word for meekness, this is strength, but it shows itself up in this kind of softness, strength under control. Self-control is there's this inward mastery, you're not a loose cannon, You don't have an abundance of triggers. They cut you off. You don't respond in kind. They cuss you out. You don't respond in kind. They ignore you. They say things that aren't true about you. They're self-interested, and you have the capacity by the Spirit of God to not respond in kind. You're under control. This is a mastery of self that's a fruit of the presence of God in your life. You have a long fuse. You have a gentle, under-control strength. You're not passive. You're not milquetoast. You're not a pansy. You're not hidden in the corner. You're just gentle. You're all in, but you're in in a way that's kind and gentle. You have self-control, and against such things there is no law, because the law that is expected by God is being ratified. If these are not the salty expressions of your life, it's not good for the manure pile or for the soil. It's good for the roadway where people will walk on it. Walking by the Spirit means you supernaturally give expression of the things of the Spirit, not the deeds of the flesh, immorality, pornea, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, constant arguing, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. Not that. Not any of that. One to ten. This is the opportunity for you to sit down with people that love you and you know they love you and have an honest conversation about what fruit or what deeds they see. Because what happens at home and what happens in the relationships that you're engaged with are the direct evidence of whether you are or are not walking in the Spirit. That's why marriage is such a critical zone. Marriage is like the ultimate assessor of where I'm at as a Christian. Because marriage is where you're most intimately exposed You're not reading a magazine and you're not watching a television show. People aren't made up and airbrushed. This is a reality. And Karen knows me and I know her. And I'm either have these qualities or I don't have these qualities. And if I don't have them at home in private, I'm not going to have them in public. 
Oh, people I work with might say, oh, Harry's a really nice guy. Man, what a good dude. That's not supernatural. If it's not supernatural at home. If my children can't bear testimony to these qualities, these fruit of the Spirit qualities, I'm not filled with the Spirit. And if I'm not filled with the Spirit and I'm not led by the Spirit, whom am I or what am I led by? The flesh, which is opposed to God, which has no capacity to produce fruit that honors God, no ability to really cause anybody to go, you know, I'd like to know what that is all about. It's not shallow, it's not hollow, it's not cardboard. It's supernatural. This passage goes on, verse 26, I want to point it out in case you miss it. Since you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Verse 26 continues as an expression of being in cadence with the Spirit. You're to not become boastful. Let's summarize boastful with this. Words, attitudes, and actions that elevate you. Spirit-led, spirit-prompted, spirit-controlled Christians do not live in a I'm-going-to-lift-me-up attitude. Do not become boastful. Don't elevate yourself. Don't lift yourself up. Walk in the Spirit. Stay in step with the Spirit. Don't become boastful. And then these participles modify that, telling you why or how you do it and why you do it. Don't lift yourself up, watch this, by challenging one another. It's called an instrumental participle of means. It tells you how you're inclined to lift yourself up by challenging one another. You know what challenging is? By comparing yourself to someone else. The word challenge comes from the idea where I'm calling you to a face-off and my dad's bigger and better than your dad. I'm taller than you. I'm stronger than you. It's a competition. Challenging one another is comparing me to you with the goal of showing you that I'm superior to you. So whether I'm arm wrestling you or I'm sharing my profile or my resume or my accomplishments, who I know, where I've been, all of the things that I might be inclined to do to make sure you know I'm over you. You're walking by the Spirit, this is what you're not doing, lifting yourself up. And you're not lifting yourself up by comparing yourself to anybody. You're not challenging by comparing. And then he gives with this next participle why you do it. Because you envy one another. Envying means I actually think you have what I want, so I'm going to elevate me and depreciate you because I want what you have. The respect you have, the prestige you have, the stuff you have, the opportunities you have. Let me summarize spirit-filled living. Spirit-filled living is not lifting yourself up or putting somebody else down. Spirit-filled living is picking someone else up and fixing them up when they fall down and you have every opportunity to go, look at Harry. Did you hear about him? 
I would never do what he did. Look at chapter 6. There's a chapter break, but it continues the idea. Brethren, even if you're in the competition business, you got an opportunity. you got a brother who's vulnerable in the competition business. Even if anyone is caught in a trespass. Uh, yeah, Harry, yeah, he's caught. He's exposed. I'm going to compare me to him now. Because my goal is to lift me up and lower him. And what Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, you have that opportunity. But if you're spiritual, contextually, spiritual is filled by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, in step with the Spirit, you're spiritual. And as a spiritual Christian, you have a brother who you could stand and triumph over. I'm better than Harry. Look at Harry. And instead you say, I'm going to restore Harry. I'm going to restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So instead of tearing Harry down when he's down, Spirit-filled Christians are supernaturally motivated to pick them up and fix them up. I'm not a, I'm not a platform or a medium to make sure everyone is protecting those who have fumbled the ball. And I don't mean hiding their sin. I mean you're not promoting their failure. You're helping them. You're aware of your own humanity, lest you too be tempted. You want to fix them up. You want to pick them up. You want to bear them up. You know why? Because you're spiritual. Not because you talk with sobering and dignified tones, but because the Spirit of God is energizing and empowering you so that you're consistently walking supernaturally fruit-bearing, unnatural relating. And I'm not talking about perverse. I'm talking about not natural in the sense it's humans couldn't do it. Lift up, fix up, pick up, bear up. One to ten, how are you? Because the bottom line is, good for nothing. Some of you live with children that need salted. Some of you play on teams with friends that need salted. Some of you have families that can't figure out what cult you're a part of. They need salted. With the power and presence of the living God in you, controlling you, dominating you, transforming you, and influencing and impacting them. Can you say amen? Oh, that was weak, wasn't it? It's either, either really strong conviction or you're thinking, man, I didn't need this today. How does that happen? What is the pathway? 
Let me give you some kind of final thoughts about how you're to be motivated. Go over to Colossians chapter 3, parallel passage. We looked at Ephesians chapter 5 last time. I want to look at a parallel passage. And I argued with you that when it says be filled with the Spirit, the participles that follow tell you, A, what is the result of that? You are worshipful, joyful, thankful, and helpful. And it's also the means to fill me. That when you are worshipful, joyful, thankful, and helpful, you will be filled with the Spirit. So it's the expression of being filled, and it's also the fuel line to being filled. Worshipful people who have a lifestyle of worship that comes from God governing and guiding every area of your life... Week-long, weekly worship means my workplace, my family, my leisure is an expression of a continual awareness of God's worth and wonder in my life. I'm worshipful. And the expression of that is songs and hymns and spiritual songs and I have melody in my heart. I'm joyful. I'm giving thanks for everything and I'm submitting to one another. That's a means and an end. I want to show you another means. Verse 16, chapter 3, Colossians. It's a parallel passage. You know, these books were written, Ephesians and Colossians, at the same time. Some commentators say the ink was still wet on one of them when the other was written. Most believe Colossians was written first. Ephesians is kind of the extended version, if you will, because there's more verses to wives and husbands and Ephesians than there are noted here in Colossians. Look at verse 16, parallel book, parallel time, house arrest, under Roman guard, Paul writes, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Richly dwell within you means take up residence and has a home in your heart. This is not in my head, it's in my heart. It richly dwells within me. It informs every room. It's not like I have a spiritual study in my soul. The spiritual information is influencing every area of my home, my heart. What I watch, how I relate. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Take up full residence is the way we would say it. Here's the effect. With all wisdom, what's the consequence? Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So it's worshipful, but it involves exhorting and encouraging. How? With the words of God housed in the word of God. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing is joyful expression of a grateful heart. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What do spirit-filled people do? This. How do they do it? As a consequence of the supernatural dwelling within me, taking up resonance in every room richly in my heart, the people who do that are word-saturated Christians. And the expression of that word saturation is exhortation, exhorting and admonishing, encouraging one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So out of the spiritual songbook, the Word of God, you speak the words of God, which encourage the people of God and challenge the people of God. 
And then you express that with joy and gratitude. And verse 17, I think, is attached to the outworking of the word of the Lord. And that is, whatever you do in word or deed, your activity, it's a worshipful activity. It's an act of worship. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So how do you walk in the Spirit? Well, by meditating and studying and abiding with the words of God. By sharing and exhorting from those words. I'm going to argue that just like the expressions in Ephesians are both the result of and the means to spirit-filling, this is the result of and the means to the expressions of a spirit-filled life as motivated and inspired by the words of God that are saturating in you, energizing, empowering, convicting, and shaping the way you live. And the effect is sharing and exhorting, worshiping, encouraging, and in everything you do, you are helping as an act of worship. You're expressing the effect and the fruit and the means to being controlled by God in such a way that is supernatural, not natural. Winsome. I can't believe that. Filled with the Word of God, meditating, studying, sharing, exhorting, worshiping, encouraging, and helping. And the words you know, here's the Another big idea, it's obeying and abiding. Listen, here's the key to walking in the Spirit, discovering God's point of view on a matter. The second key statement is deciding by faith to do what God has revealed on that matter. It is obeying God, not just knowing the things that honor God. It is a continuing communion with Christ by obeying the indwelling word of Christ as you depend on the Spirit of Christ. This is John 15. I want to bear fruit to the glory of God. I do that as a consequence of the word of Christ dwelling in me, actively obeying, which allows me the freedom and the joy and the privilege and the connection intimately of abiding. And the abiding results in supernatural fruit bearing, which gives glory to God and salts the world in which I live. Obeying and abiding. Let me give you one more since we're at the end of our hour. By depending and praying. Ephesians 6.18 says you want to armor up and then you're praying at all times in the Spirit. Listen, you're weaker than you know and you're needier than you think. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. You can't walk in the Spirit. You can't be salty. You can't be a blessing. You can't bear fruit. You know what you are? You can't do anything. Without me, you can do nothing which means you need to depend on me. You need to stay intimately connected to me. You need to abide in me. And one of the chief evidences that I am God-dependent is prayer. Prayer is the proof of dependence on the Spirit of God. I need to acknowledge I'm desperately dependent because in my flesh, Romans 7, I have no good thing. I can't will it. I can't muster it. I can't affect it. I can't produce it. I need God to do it. 
And the only way I manifest that I'm God dependent is when I'm praying and saying, God, make me what I'm not. I'm living by faith. I'm acknowledging desperate dependence and I'm praying the promises that God has made. Closing passage, turn with me, Hebrews 13, 21. I'll read it. It's self-explanatory, but it's meant as an encouragement to being spirit-dependent and in recognition that what I need, God is the author of. The writer of Hebrews closes this majestic epistle, the highest quality writing regarding the highest subject, Christ possible. Verse 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord. So it's God that's being appealed to as the author of everything good. Jesus, our Lord, may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you. May he do it, equip you in every good thing to do his will. So he is the equipper. Now look at verse 21. Working in us. Who is the subject? God is. God is the equipper. God is the worker. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, get this clear, Cornerstone. God began it. God continues it, and God finishes it. He does the work. This is not a bootstrap religion. This is I'm submitted, I'm desperately dependent, I'm convinced, I'm obeying, I'm listening, I'm following. The Word of God is governing and guiding, and you're the doer of all the good that flows out of it. You're the equipper. And you're the one working that gives me an interest in doing what is pleasing. Can you say amen? Amen. How salty are you? I'm not going to ask again for a while. You're going praise the Lord like a broken record. It's on my heart. I was telling Karen I got an email yesterday from a football player I played with at Brown. He got saved at our fraternity Bible study. He's at a conference in Pennsylvania listening to Phil Johnson. And he says, I just thought I needed to reach out after all these years and reconnect because of the influence of those days. You know what that was? A really good email. I hope you have influence and impact. I'm not the example The word of God is. Father, thank you for the opportunity to unpack some of these priorities today. Or this walking by the Spirit. Dependent, surrendered, listening, following. Expressing. Qualities that are the evidence of a God who is doing what only God can do. Attracting people, convicting people, impacting people. Where the salt of the earth make us salty. I ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.